So for me, retirement didn't mean stopping. It meant shifting. But I see the people who are engaged in things that are creative, for example, are way more vital, way more alive. Especially as we age, remain relevant and make a contribution to the world that we want to make and at the same time make money. If I don't do this now, when am I going to do this? I've always worked, so I've never developed the retirement skills, so to say. This is Unretirement, a podcast about finding purpose and a paycheck in the second half of life. I'm Chris Farrell from American Public Media. My guest on today's podcast is, well, about as unretired as you can get. He's unretired twice, and the first time he was only in his 30s. Back then, he left a career that a lot of young men dream about. I know I did. He was a pro football player, and he was a star. Alan Page played defense for the Vikings and the Bears. He was the first defenseman named the NFL's most valuable player. Today, he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But back in 1981, Alan Page had had enough. I, as a football player, spent what I would call an inordinate amount of time worrying about how much money I made. I got to the point that... um, I was making enough to live on, to live well on. Right. And at some point, the, the money became secondary. Better I should be doing something that I enjoy doing, that I want to do, that I like to do, than making a lot of money doing something that I absolutely hate, that I absolutely really don't want to be doing. I came to the conclusion that, um, you know, they didn't print enough money last year to make me do that. They just, I'm, I'm done with that. Yeah. And so I, I do what I think is important, do what I enjoy, try to do it well. And, you know, the, the money piece is taking care of itself. We're not going to go hungry anytime soon. What Alan Page really wanted to do, his passion, his desire, was to practice law, to be a lawyer. So he did what I'm always telling people to do on this podcast. He planned his transition from his first career to his first unretirement. So one of the things I'm curious about is how you've made some transitions. Because here you're playing professional football, which is an absorbing, draining, full-time job. And then you tried to go to law school. Yes. So what were you thinking? Well, my interest in the law and law school existed before I started playing football. When people would ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up, when I was six or seven, I would say I wanted to be a lawyer, in part because I had watched too much Perry Mason Okay, so total aside, I love that because one of my fondest memories of my dad is it was a little black and white TV, and that's what we did. He, we loved watching Perry Mason together. Great show. It really was. Great show. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you're a young kid, and you look at your surroundings, and, you know, for somebody like me growing up in Canton, Ohio, if things went well, I might 
be able to get a job, a lifetime job in the steel mill. Um, not that there's anything wrong with jobs in steel mills, but right. I figured out early on that that wasn't for me. Dangerous work, repetitious work, and I've never been very good with repetitious. That coupled with hearing stories about all the rich lawyers in town who drove big fancy cars and didn't, you know, went and played <laughs> golf on Wednesday afternoons. <laughs> And when you balance those two, the steel mill versus the golf on Wednesday afternoons, um, I would say I wanted to be a lawyer. The, the other side of that is that I was eight years old in 1954 when the Supreme Court decided Brown versus the Board of Education. I can still remember reading articles, newspaper articles in the Canton Repository in the Cleveland Plain Dealer about Brown versus the Board of Education. That moved me. Again, not that I knew anything about the law, not that I understood right. it, but it was clear that there was power in the law. And over time, uh, as I grew older and developed as a person, it became clear that to me that I began to think that you know the law is about helping people and solving problems and two things that I was interested in and not golf and not golf. <laughs> I don't play golf. <laughs> I, I will leave it at that. But your first, as, as someone once said, a good walk spoiled. <laughs> it took Alan Page two tries to get through law school. He got his law degree in 1978 and three years later, he traded in his football helmet for a colorful, bow tie. Turns out he was a star at the law too. In just a little over a decade, he was elected to the Minnesota State Supreme Court, the first African-American to serve. Page was on the court for 22 years until August of 2015 when he turned 70. He had hit the court's mandatory retirement age. So he's on to a new unretirement. He's just not quite sure what that means yet. Well, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. That's the problem. Um, I was so focused on the work of the court. Which is absorbing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what comes next. Um, and so I've got to work that through. I mean, I thought sort of generally, and I have this... Um, sense that I'd like to do something in education with young children. I think I have something to contribute, maybe. I have some interest in maybe trying to figure out how to develop um, either a reading or writing seminar, if you will, for first, second, third graders getting them thinking about writing and communicating on the written page. So developing those critical thinking skills? Absolutely. I would like to direct it, if you will, at African-American males. That segment of society, uh, children in our society who are falling by the wayside and whose uh, educational achievement is uh, dismal at best. 
my thinking is if we can get those young people thinking critically early on, things will change dramatically in terms of their educational achievement. So in your Hall of Fame address, which I read, it was incredibly moving. One of the things you said is, I don't know when children stop dreaming, but I knew when hope starts leaking away because I've seen it happen. You can see it. I, over the years, I've spent a lot of time in schools talking to children about uh, the importance of education. And you see children in the first, second, third grade, there is so much enthusiasm for learning. They are like sponges. And this is, imp- and I've seen it, this is in poor neighborhoods. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Every, yeah. all children. Yeah. And then you see some of those same children, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and the lights have gone out. They, are, they have lost that curiosity. And um, I think we can change that. And I don't, maybe I'm naive, uh, but I don't think it's uh, mission impossible. And I think it's, it's through sort of reading and writing. Justice Page has been interested in getting kids to read and to think for a long time. He's even authored a children's book. That's right, a children's book. Picture this. His pinky finger was broken so many times that it sticks out at a 45-degree angle, a perpendicular pinky. So along with his daughter, Kami, he wrote, Alan in his perfectly pointy, impossibly perpendicular pinky. Isn't that a great name? Anyway, the story praises childhood curiosity. It encourages young people to ask questions, ask questions, and keep asking questions. Education really matters to Alan Page. He and his wife, Diane, started the Page Education Foundation in 1988. So these are scholarships for post-secondary education for students of color. Yes. Here in Minnesota, Minnesota kids going to Minnesota schools. That first year we had... uh, 10, we call them paid scholars. This year we have 536. Our grants range in amount from um, 1000 up to $2,500 every year, renewable. That's part of what we do. The most important part of what we do, though, is we require our paid scholars to go back into the community where they come from or the community where they're going to school, to work with young children kindergarten through eighth grade, specifically in the area of education, as tutors, mentors, and role models. Sending the strong, clear message to those younger children that education is a tool that can be used to make the future better. And those young children get to see somebody using education While Justice Page was on the court, his wife, Diane, was the force behind the foundation. Now that he's retired, he plans on getting more involved. But while some things change in retirement, or really, unretirement, other routines stay the same. He and his wife run every morning around a lake near their Minneapolis home. One of the important things, at least for me, is trying to maintain some semblance of a schedule. So the alarm clock still goes off at... 5.20 in the morning. Actually, it goes off at 5.19. Don't ask me why 5.19, but that's that's where it sort of ended up. 
and it goes off uh, every morning at that time. And uh, we start our day. We get out. We're out the door by 6, which is actually a good thing because we get to catch the sunrise every morning, which is um, well worth doing. His schedule is full. He's spending more time with the grandkids, picking them up at school. And he and Diane have a number of passions and interests, such as making maple syrup. This coming uh, March will be in our third year of production. We've expanded. We started off with, I think, uh, 11 or 12 trees the first year. Last year we had 25 to 30 and Somehow we've jumped it up to 100 trees. I'm not sure how that's going to work. <laughs> that and we've, we actually, we took a, Diane and I took a sausage making class. Mm. That was a lot of fun. And we ended up uh, a two-day class. We ended up with 70 pounds of, of all sorts of wonderful sausage. So there's something you're going to keep doing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, once we get through the 70 pounds, <laughs> I mean, it may be and a you while. you can pour the maple syrup on top of the sausage. And the, the two go together, don't they? They do, yes. Absolutely. Justice Page and Diane also own an amazing collection of artifacts from African-American history. We started collecting back in the late 80s. Diane actually is the one that started the collection. She's developed a wonderful collection of... Uh, both the beautiful and sort of the ugly side yeah. of the black experience. Because isn't there one of them colored bathrooms and we've, all, all of that? We've got a, a colored waiting room sign, uh, an original sign from the bus station in Birmingham, Alabama, which we found, interestingly, out in California at an antique shop. We've, we've got some um, Ku Klux Klan items. We've got some just some beautiful artwork that uh, shows the, the rich history of African Americans in this country. Do you have a favorite? I do. We have a, um, an Abraham Lincoln funeral banner. It's... Uh, cloth with a pigskin lamp at the top. Mm -hmm. It's about, I suppose, what is this, three by four, three by five, something like that. On one side it says, Uncle Abe, we shall not forget you. And on the other side it says, our country shall be one country. That is a very powerful reminder of where we've been and where we still have to go. Um, it moves me every time I see it. And um, so, yeah. It moves me just to hear you describe it. It's, it's, it's the first time I saw it, it brought me to tears. I mean, you just, you know, it's something that existed at the time, shortly after the end of the Civil War. Uh, 
as a result of, came to be as a result of the assassination of a president and to be privileged to um, have it in our possession, even if for only a short time, um, it's pretty special. And there has been progress, but not that much. I mean, it seems when you go back to Canton, Ohio, when you're reading the newspaper in Canton, Ohio, 1954, to now, there has been progress. There has been progress, and in some ways, it's been significant. I mean, the the idea that somebody like me couldn't drink at a water fountain simply because of the color of my skin is something that most people today can't, you know, that weren't there at the time, wouldn't understand, can't relate to it. And so in some respects, we've made progress. But uh, in terms of getting to true equal opportunity so that my chance to fail or succeed is the same as everybody else's. That simply isn't the case yet. And this is where going full circle, the passion about education comes in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it seems to me that education is a tool that puts us on the road to equality. Justice Page is like a lot of people in their unretirement years. He's trying to figure out what comes next. That's why it's fitting his inspiring story is the last podcast for the unretirement pilot season. Everyone we've interviewed for our podcast has told us wonderful stories about their goals, their aspirations, and their struggles in the second half of life. Justice Page has plenty to do. And he has a lot to offer. Even if he's not quite sure what it is or what comes next, there's something kind of reassuring about this. Here's a guy who went to the top of two highly competitive professions. And even he finds himself dealing with uncertainty. How can he best reach out to young African-Americans, especially young African-American males? What can he do to help ignite their curiosity and hope for the future to see how an education can pay off over a lifetime? Look, those are tough questions. There are no easy answers. But it's a journey well worth taking, isn't it? One last thought. We all use the word retire, the single stage of life or elder years. I mean, I do it all the time. Yet the word retire stems from a French word for withdrawing or heading into isolation. And I find the concept of withdrawal, of isolation, bleak. It's also the wrong image. And I came across what I think is a much better metaphor when I was doing reporting with a colleague for a public radio documentary at the Henry Horner Public Housing Project in Chicago. We met a group of women who were living there, and these women, along with their public interest lawyers, had successfully fought for the Chicago Housing Authority to give them a voice in the redesign, the remodeling of their complex. At one point during the interview, a lifelong public housing resident and current public housing employee, she turned to us and she said, how do we connect the disconnected? That's the key to success in this community, 
in any other community is connecting the disconnected. Justice Page is connecting. So is Sylvia, Joe, Sandra, and the other people we've interviewed for these podcasts. They aren't retreating. They aren't withdrawing. They aren't in isolation. No, they're connecting. They and millions more like them are engaged. They're connected. The unretirement generation, and I am excited about the opportunities that are going to open up in the second half of life. And I want to tell more stories about what people are doing in their unretirement years. Up next, an interview with Mark Friedman, the founder of Encore.org, and an important voice in this rethinking of the second half of life. Mark Friedman is a social entrepreneur. He founded Encore.org. The nonprofit has a goal of encouraging aging Americans to tap into their life experiences and engage in second and third careers, seeking out jobs that deal with social problems. When you're with Mark, he's very fond of quoting from a 1965 speech by the legendary public servant John Gardner. Here's what Gardner said. What we had before us are some breathtaking opportunities disguised as insoluble problems. I like that. In other words, how can society take advantage of an aging population to nourish a stage of life that Friedman says could be defined by, and I quote here, by purpose, contribution, and commitment, particularly to the well-being of future generations? So think Justice Page. Little wonder, Friedman is a big proponent of mentoring. So here's the kind of number that gets Mark really excited. If just 5% of the 78 million baby boomers volunteered as mentors, that's close to 4 million people. Why not 30%? Why not 80%? Mentoring is built into the Page Education Foundation requirements and vision. So I thought a good follow-up to our conversation with Justice Page would be to ask Friedman for some insights into mentorship. And what I was interested in is what are the benefits of mentorship for the person being mentored? And what about for the person who's doing the mentoring? Now, you're, you know, right now most associated with Encore.org, I mean, the organization you founded and run, but mentorship has been a theme that's run throughout your career. I, uh, I have a lot of mentors myself, and, and they had an enormous impact on me, so it's something that's, that's personal as well as professional, but the professional connection really grew out of the working on the first study that had been done of the Big Brother, Big Sister program. Um, uh, I spent 15 years working for uh, a youth organization, a uh, research organization called Public Private Ventures, and we did a study of kids who were on the waiting list of Big Brothers, Big Sisters. At that point, 70,000 young people were being served in that program, uh, but 30,000 were languishing on the waiting list, and, and for a year and a half on average. And so we took 500 kids um, who were on the waiting list in cities around the country and gave them big sisters and big brothers right away. And then we took a comparison group of 500 other kids in those same cities, and they waited the, the 18 months that, that was standard at that point. And we just wanted to see what the difference was at the end of that period. And it was staggering. There was a 46% difference in kids starting to use drugs, a 50% difference in school truancy, a 33% difference in violent behavior. These, these relationships were having an enormously powerful impact in, in kids' 
behavior and their school performance um, in their sense of optimism. And so uh, it raised a, a powerful question, which is uh, if, if these kinds of bonds work so well for young people, why are so many kids without them and, and without them for such a long period of time? And that's essentially the question of where, where are the human beings to do those things that only people can do? And what I realized and others who were working on that study is that most of the adults who were being recruited to mentor young people through that program at that time were too busy to spend uh, uh, enough time with their own kids, much less 10 to 12 hours a month mm. with somebody else's kid and raise that whole question of where were the untapped human resources for uh, programs like Big Brothers Big Sisters and for mentoring and for other efforts in society and and drove me to the conclusion that that the greatest opportunity was in the older population. So fast forward 20 years, what's the untapped potential now in order to mentor younger people? You know, I, I felt at that point that uh, it was about time and numbers. You know, where where was where were the where were the untapped human resources in society that had enough time to do mentoring in the way that Big Brothers Big Sisters and other high quality programs did, which amounted to to ten to twelve hours a month, as I was mentioning earlier, um, and also had the numbers to reach uh, a large swath of the younger population, and so older people were appealing in both of those areas because studies of, of time availability suggested that that was a great, this population was a great repository of time. And obviously the numbers of people over 50 were increasing dramatically. Since that time, I've discovered that there is maybe even a more important feature, which is that people in later life in general are the best at relationship in society. Laura Carstensen, who's a psychologist at Stanford, shows that emotional regulation and other relationship skills truly bloom in later life. Um, and what's more, other developmental psychologists have shown that the, the impulse to connect with younger generations is also something that flowers later in life and is a great source of happiness. Uh, George Valen at Harvard Medical School has shown that people uh, in midlife and beyond who are involved in these kinds of mentoring bonds with with younger generations are three times as likely to be happy as those who fail to connect in that way. And he has a wonderful expression. He, he says essentially that it's built into human nature, he, he, that biology flows downhill. Um, hmm. And I think that that really captures both the capacity and, and impulse people in later life to, to mentor um, and the, the instinct to do so. Now, what makes for a good mentor? I, you know, I, I early on um, met a group of retired electrical workers and teamsters and firemen in Saugus, Massachusetts, who were mentors in a program to help young people who'd been in trouble with the juvenile justice system for nonviolent crimes to uh, avoid going to prison uh, and getting a job where they could help pay restitution to the victims of their crimes. <laughs> um, so basically uh, um, a, a mentoring program where uh, not only life skills but access to a blue-collar job market was, uh, was involved. And what I found uh, among the mentors who, um, who were successful in that program 
is that they uh, they didn't tell these young people to uh, to to uh, think of them as role models. They didn't tell them to uh, to listen to what they said. In many ways, what what they talked about was their own failure, and uh, and conveyed a message: don't make the same mistakes that I made. And there was a a real humility to that that I think is an important part of mentoring. Uh, but I think I think it goes further than that. In the Big Brother Big Sister research, uh, it turns out that um, that being prescriptive, uh, being a mentor who um, you know has a strategic plan for transforming the life life of a child is, uh, is an absolute disaster. Uh, in, in that study, I think after nine months, only 7% of those relationships were meeting where the mentor took that approach. The kids were hiding from that. <laughs> they, only, the last thing they needed was another adult telling them what they should do. And the ones who were tremendously successful um, were the ones who um, just took time to have a relationship. You know, they take the kids out to a fast food restaurant to eat a lot of trans fats and undermine the longevity revolution in the process <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was very it was it was developmental it was slow and i came to believe that a good mentoring relationship is a lot like cooking a souffle you know if you hurry it it collapses um but if not you get something that's truly you know wonderful and and long lasting so i think that those aspects are 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 really core it, it's very much focused on um on the young person or the younger person themselves, um, um, and on on the slow process of you know building a bond of of trust, and and it's it's illustrated beautifully in I think uh, that, that both what's right and and what's wrong with uh, with mentoring in the two films about jazz that came out last year. The famous one, of course, is Whiplash, where the older teacher. Uh, essentially tries to um, um, impose his ego and will on the on the young person and I guess in some cases that can succeed but the, I think the much more telling and and authentic film is one called keep on keeping on which is the story of the relationship between uh, of the jazz legend Clark Turry, who was a great trumpet player, and a 24-year-old blind pianist, uh, Justin Coughlin. And in that relationship, you, you know, Terry is not trying to, um, to tell the, the young musician how to do things, um, how, to, uh, how he would do things. Instead, he's, he's working to help uh, Coughlin, the, the young pianist, find his own voice. And I think yeah. that's... That captures a lot of what's what's beautiful about mentoring. If it's about the young person finding their own identity, their own voice, um, and not simply copying that of the uh, of the mentor, uh, I think you get much more powerful bond. Yeah, I think you know, in my experience dealing with editors, a great editor is the person that helps you find your own voice, to help you say what it is you're trying to say, and a bad editor is the one that rewrites it to say what they want to say. Yes, exactly. I think that really applies to mentoring. Um, and, um, you know, some people can do it instinctively. They really understand that, that truth. But I think others of us uh, can learn that. Um, and um, I, think, I think people, so many people have the capacity to be good mentors. They have the desire, but they need to develop the skills. 
So, Mark, where is your vision? Where do you see or where would you like to see this mentorship going? Uh, I'm working on and would love to to see uh, a mobilization of older people who are interested in creating powerful relationships that are developmental uh, and constructive for young people as a way of uh, of getting back to that George Valent quote that we talked about earlier. If biology flows downhill, shouldn't society, shouldn't we create societies that encourage older people to play that role in the next generation, that enable older people to do that more easily uh, beyond their families in their, in their communities? Uh, I think if we did that, we could... Uh, help navigate these changing demographics that we hear so much about in ways that are mutually beneficial for old and young alike. Um, I think in in this new world that we're living in and that so many other nations are facing, there are fewer and fewer young people, and maybe they're a more precious resource than ever for society. Parents are oftentimes strapped with long hours at work and various other responsibilities. Uh, and older people are in need of a purpose and have great skills when it comes to connecting across the generations. I, I think we could bring those things together in a new mix um, that turn that old notion of, of older people as having a second childhood, um, as trying to be kids themselves, to be there for people who actually are young and who do co- constitute the future. I, I think we rerouted the river of life, and now we need to return it to its natural course. I think you're right on. I mean, I just think you're spot on, and uh, sign me up. (laughs) I've just done that, Chris. You'll be getting an email shortly. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. It's great to talk to you. That was Mark Friedman, the founder and head of Encore.org. Now for a listener question. We got this one off our Facebook page, facebook.com slash unretirement. My name is Rosemary. I live in Belmont, New Jersey. I have 30 years of mental health experience, a master's degree in hospitality, and a passion for children and horses. I'm 55, and I want desperately to open a riding arena for children with autism. I can easily get the horses off the racetrack to retrain, but I'm concerned about many issues, money, insurance, staff, injuries, etc. Has my ship sailed? Signed, not wanting to die with a dream unfulfilled. Has your ship sailed? Rosemary, your ship has not sailed. Not at all. You have experience. You have a passion. Now it's time to get to work, and it's going to take several years. So my first suggestion is that you take vacations, you take all the free time you can, and you volunteer in nonprofit organizations that work with horses and people with disability. And there are a number of them all around the country. You know, one in particular that I admire is Spirit Horse. It's about 30 miles outside of Dallas. And it was founded by Charles Fletcher. And in 2014, he got a Purpose Prize Award from Encore.org, which, as you know, is the organization that, you know, encourages people to do something really meaningful in the second half of life. And what his organization does is it's therapeutic horses and it's 
young people with disabilities, autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, and it also provides therapy during the lessons. So I would go to Dallas. I would talk to Charles Fletcher. I would get as much information as I can. I would spend time there. Another organization you'd want to check out and do some research is PATH, the Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship. And again, there'll be a lot of information, places you can go to, volunteer activities you can do. So that's the first thing I would do. And just, you know, people who have done what you imagine, even if it's not exactly what you want to do, but it's somewhat close, talk to them. They're going to share all kinds of information. How did they succeed? What did they learn from what they've done? What were the pitfalls that they'd recommend that you avoid? I'd also create an advisory board. This is a group of people that you trust. They have skills that you might not have, perhaps a marketing background, a finance background, a fundraising background, and they agree to meet with you quarterly or some sort of regular basis, and you use them as a sounding board. You're your trusted advisors. They're going to give you good information. And so as you start thinking about marketing and insurance and finance and fundraising and how is this really going to work, they're going to take your ideas, which you're going to present to them, and they're going to give you feedback. And then you're going to go back out to the places that you've been volunteering at, the people you've been talking to. And again, you just continue to refine your idea, to hone your idea, because what you are out to do is to create a business. My last point is that I've worked with a number of people. I know a lot of people who have started nonprofit organizations, social entrepreneurs. They have a deep passion. And in the end, they're all going to tell you, your fundraising source, where the income is going to come from, is absolutely critical. So as you meet people, as you talk to people, always have in your back of your mind, what's my fundraising source? How am I going to create this as a viable business? Because although it's a nonprofit and you want to do wonderful work, you want it to be around year after year after year so that you can help these kids who have autism. Thanks for listening to Unretirement. Now, this has been our pilot season, eight episodes, and you can listen to any of our podcasts if you go to unretirement.fm or you can listen to them on iTunes. And by the way, if you listen to it on iTunes, do us a favor. Give us a review, a rating, and that will help more and more people learn about our podcast. We'll be back for a second season of Unretirement. We're gathering information. We're looking for new stories. So get in touch with us at unretirement.fm if you have a good story for us to consider. I'd like to thank editor Catherine Winter, producer Lauren D, and our bosses, Steve Nelson and Nancy Cassett, for all their work on the podcast in the pilot season. See you in season two. I'm Chris Farrell from American Public Media.